Hello, fellow walkers. Great to be with you today. January is National Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month. This is one of those topics that so many people do not want to talk about, but that all of us need to be talking about. So today on the show, we have survivor, speaker, advocate, and difference maker, Jessica Teresi. If we're not reading the Bible through Jesus, then we're taking everything as equal and giving everything uh, the same weight and taking it at its face value. The Bible's an incoherent text. How can you say, listen to the cries of the poor without looking at what makes them poor? You don't have to believe certain things to be part. The irony is that you can be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, anti-environment, and still say you're pro-life. But people get really uncomfortable. It's like they want to have their religion and they want to have their porn. They want to do both. I don't think any form of Christianity deserves to survive and thrive if it doesn't come to terms with the racism of our past. When we really tell the story of Jesus, we find a God who comes to the point where it has all collapsed. If a good teacher is to get a student to get the right answers on the test, and if Jesus was supposed to get us to get the right answer for when we die, then can we just be honest and say, not a good teacher? It is a new year, so let's get our health and nutrition on track. And who better to help us with that than Rise Nutrition? You can find them at Rise Menominee on Facebook. And just for Jesus Never Ran listeners, you can click on their link in the show notes and get a free wellness profile. That's Rise Nutrition. Find them on Facebook at Rise Menominee. That's Rise with a Z. There are so many important causes in our world today that we need to get behind, but I'd argue that there are none as important as working together to get rid of human trafficking. So let's start our conversation by hearing from Jessica Teresi. Thank you for having me on here. I definitely appreciate it. So my name is Jess, and I am an advocate and a speaker on surviving sexual violence as a child and then intimate partner violence. And so I've worked in advocacy in some way or another ever since college, basically, advocating for the most vulnerable in our society. And probably around 2011 or 12, I want to say, I started advocating with women who've experienced sexual assaults and sort of branched off and started working with women of sexual assault victimization as well as domestic violence. And throughout that time, I had this really amazing opportunity to navigate what my own healing looked like and what some of the barriers were, the bias that I had as a victim survivor moving into advocacy and and really what it took to prevent the violence that we were trying to advocate against. And my most recent position outside of doing what I do now as a consultant was training community members and advocates to work alongside victim survivors of both domestic and sexual violence. And I loved it. It was so much fun to meet with community members who were so dedicated and interested in learning about these issues. Uh, But my favorite thing was that I actually got to create curriculum on prevention and go into high schools and middle schools and talk with students about violence within their own community and how to prevent it when they became adults. And so it's just been really fun and I love doing it. It's a tough topic, but it's so incredibly important that we talk about. And I 
enjoy having the opportunity to talk with anybody about it at any point. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for the work that you do. It's so vitally important in our world and especially today, but I think in, in any situation. Now, why is it? I mean, I guess there's some reasons that are obvious, but why is it that this is a topic that for our culture, and you and I both are Midwesterners at heart, right? We grew up in the Midwest or we spent a lot of time there. So why is it that this is such a difficult topic for us to talk about? Because I would think when we have such a obvious injustice in our world, that it would be something that everybody's wanting to get to the heart of and wanting to, to fix or wanting to eradicate or whatever word you want to use. But why is it that this is one of those things that I think everybody sees as important, but so few actually want to have the difficult conversations? Yeah, I think a lot of it is our inability to recognize our internalized bias and how we have dealt with trauma in our own life. I mean, when we look at the rates of how many people are experiencing sexual violence, especially as kids, right, it's just astounding how many people are experiencing this. And we all have our different coping mechanisms and our family systems respond to it differently. And so we end up comparing our own experiences with the experiences of other people. And sometimes that's a detriment, and most of the time it is, uh, but sometimes it's even a detriment to the point where you just won't talk about it then because you don't feel like your story belongs a part of, of the community. I remember sitting inside of one of my very first support groups for adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse probably about three weeks in and I said, I don't feel like I belong here. I feel like what has happened to you guys is so unbelievably traumatic and what happened to me doesn't fit. And so I think there's these mixed messages that we get as kids about what violence looks like. And we set up our whole world view then around it. So for me, being that I was sexually abused before I really had the ability to name it, my brain didn't have this ability to tell mom and dad, hey, so-and-so did this to me and I didn't like it. Instead, my brain experienced it and processed it, filed it away, and then much later it came up as flashbacks and memories of just these little blips, right? And how do you talk about that experience if you don't have exacts? I can't say when it happened. I can't say for sure who did it. And so it becomes this sort of place where I'm thinking, well, maybe it didn't happen. And when I have conversations with other people who talk about the experience of violence without naming it, we sort of start to do that with our own experiences then, right? So if you're not going to name your experience as rape, well, then I'm not going to name my experience as rape, right? Because what does that mean about me if I experienced rape, but you didn't experience rape? And so I think there's so many things that go into it. And we've just been living in a culture that focuses so much on just sucking it up. Don't talk about it. Don't ruin anybody's day. Don't bring it up. And victim survivors often end up with that shame and that guilt, and it just keeps them silent. What are some of the words, in order to have a healthy conversation, I think we do have to have an understanding of what we're talking about when we're saying certain things. What are some definitions that we universally should have a handle on? 
One of the biggest things that I talk about, so it's January, right? So Human Trafficking Awareness Month, which is so incredibly important. It's been something that we've been really focusing on, right? In our culture and our society, just bringing out awareness specifically about sex trafficking, right? Because human trafficking is an umbrella term that also includes different types of labor as well. Uh, so when we're talking about sex trafficking specifically, it's important that we also broaden our understanding and recognize that sexual violence is the main thing that we actually have to be willing to address. And sexual violence, again, that umbrella term, right, that fits all of those different experiences of any type of a violation that is sexual in nature. So anytime that we don't have consent of the individual, that could be construed as sexual violence. And Victim survivors use different words to express what happened to them. A lot of times when we're talking about child sexual abuse, that's really an umbrella term again that can include actual rape where there was vaginal penetration or anal penetration. It could also include fondling and molestation or grooming. You know, the grooming part, maybe they didn't actually get to the full part of sexually abusing them, but grooming is often sexual in nature anyways. So there's some component of that. But there's also so many other behaviors that we have to be looking at. And so really what I advocate for is that we stop focusing on the specific words that victim survivors use to explain what happened to them and instead allow them to talk about how what happened to them has impacted them and what do we need to do as a society to both respond to the need of that victim survivor in that moment but what do we also need to do in order to prevent the behavior from happening again so that leads right directly into another question and i think this is a space where a lot of people get it wrong as well how do we respond something comes up we discover that something has happened what should be our response and i know that's going to be a little different based on the situation but i think there's definitely some things that we tend to do wrong consistently if something would come up whether it's in a conversation or whether a professional setting wherever we are whatever we're doing what should our first response be the number one thing that we should do when somebody discloses that they experience some form of sexual violence, whether it's human trafficking, sex trafficking, rape, child sexual abuse, whether it happened to them 30 minutes ago or it happened to them 30 years ago, is silence our own brains. Our brains constantly want to have all of the answers, right? And so a lot of times we experience as victim survivors those questions, which maybe don't seem like they're meant to be victim blaming, but they end up being victim blaming. Things like, well, what do you mean? Like, what actually happened? Are you sure it was this person? Are you sure that it happened here? Well, did you say no? Have you reported to the police? Right? We ask all these questions. And so if we can stop our brains and realize that somebody just told us something, that what studies have shown, if I tell you I experienced sexual assault and my first experience with telling you is that you don't believe me or lead me to believe that I was wrong, I will most likely not seek out support anywhere else, right? Which leads to an increase in suicidal ideation, depression, attempted suicide, or completed suicide. So our responsibility is to shut our minds 
and ask that person what do they need in that moment. First, thank them for telling you that information. Say, I really, I applaud you for telling me this. Thank you so much for trusting me with this. What what do you need in this moment right now? Do you need to just kind of talk through what happened? Would you like to talk with an advocate who's trained in this work to sort of just process through this information and tell them that it doesn't matter what they did or they didn't do. It's not their fault. And that I believe you, which is oddly controversial to say, I believe you, right? And that goes into a whole other conversation about why it is incredibly difficult to tell somebody that you believe them when they tell you. And I think one of the things that I've always said to my advocates or anybody who cares to support victim survivors, it is not your responsibility to navigate the legal system and determine whether or not what they are telling to you is factual on a legal basis and could put that other individual in jail. It is our responsibility as community members, as neighbors, as friends, as a family to love and support a person when they're struggling. And so if I am helping that person by being there in that moment with them saying, I believe you, this isn't your fault. I'm so sorry that this happened. What do you need from me? I am giving them an opportunity to create space that's going to allow them to make a decision about what is best for them and how they actually want to move forward with whatever happened to them. And then on a larger, more corporate level, let's call it, what are things that we need to be advocating for in that space? So not anymore talking about a specific individual, but this is a larger issue within our country, within our world. What are some things that we need to be doing as a society to get at the root of many of the problems that are leading to sexual violence and abuse? As a society, one of the things that sometimes people get annoyed with me about when I talk is that I will always tell you that you're the problem. What I mean by that is that it isn't a neighbor problem. It isn't a men who go to strip clubs problem. It isn't a persons who consume pornography problem. It is my problem. Even though I am a victim of childhood sexual abuse and intimate partner abuse, I am still a byproduct of my culture and my society. I still agree to certain ideas. I still maybe consume movies or books that perpetuate the violence that happens in this world that makes it difficult for me to recognize the violence that's actually happening. So we have to first and foremost recognize that we bear a responsibility individually to make decisions about what we are going to do in order to prevent what we say we want to prevent. Once we have that, right, then collectively, as a society, we are able to make movements towards what it would look like. So for me, what that would look like is that we recognize that not all children are growing up in homes that are healthy enough to have honest conversations about healthy sexuality or consent or sexual violence. In fact, many of those homes have homes where there is sexual violence happening, where there is some form of violence happening. And so we have a responsibility as society to educate our children when they're going into schools so that all of these kids are learning, hey, this is what 
consent actually looks like. When somebody touches you and you don't want them to, that's a violation of your body. And it's okay to expect them to respect that. And here's how we respect when somebody says no. Here's how we respect when we want something, but somebody else doesn't want something. And unfortunately, we are in a situation where a lot of people will pull their kids out of any consent education because they don't want us teaching kids, hey, here's how you say yes to having sex. I actually don't teach kids how to say yes to sex. I'm trying to give kids the tools to actually say no when they want to and kids the tools to respect it when the no is said because that is the deciding factor between whether or not it's rape or it's sex and that is unfortunately what is happening with our youth and so prevention education is so incredibly important to me it isn't just about having sex but it is about how to build relationships where we authentically honor the humanity of people and their right to make decisions about what happens in their life and what happens to their body. And as we sort of move through, we can look at what corporations are doing, right? So if you're familiar with everything going on with Trafficking Hub right now and Pornhub, Visa and MasterCard, right? They just decided that they were no longer going to continue partnering with Pornhub anymore with payment. Now, what does this mean in the broad spectrum? Who knows? Because Pornhub is massive, right? They're going to figure out different ways to have payments done. But we've seen this happen. We've seen a collective push with people who are advocating against human trafficking and pornography with hotels, major hotel systems saying, hey, stop offering adult pornographic material to your people who are staying in your hotels, asking these giant credit card corporations to stop allowing their information to go. Google, several years ago, decided that they were going to stop partnering with some pornographic material and, and advertisements. And so individually, when we make that shift personally for ourselves, it becomes very easy to advocate to people we care about. And as we speak up, then things can start to happen at a corporate level. But it takes us being responsible enough and willing to have those tough conversations with ourselves that say, what am I partnering with that keeps me from caring about that little person in my neighborhood who's being sexually abused? How am I helping in my own faith community? Am I challenging massive corporations within the faith community when I know that there has been cover-ups of sexual assault? Am I consuming music from churches that are continuing to cover up sexual assault, right? So yes, there's a loss that we have to have individually, but that loss is yours to choose what you're going to do. I'll never tell you, don't consume this and don't do this. You have to figure out what you're comfortable doing and where you feel you're personally going to make the most movement. Yeah, that's great advice. Because at the end of the day, we can point our finger all day long at everybody else. But if we can't figure out what we need to do, then it's somewhat irrelevant. It just becomes a finger pointing game. Now, this is one of those issues. This is one of those injustices in our world that at first glance seems insurmountable. And then all of a sudden something happens like with what happened with Pornhub in the last month or so. And suddenly you get like this glimmer of hope, like maybe we could actually do this. So as somebody that's working in this field day in and day out, what is your hope for the future in regards to dealing with sexual violence, trafficking, however you want to take it? 
would love to see us get to a place where sexual violence isn't there. And I'm always that advocate who says, I truly believe that we can get there. I truly believe that sexual violence, those who commit sexual violence are using a behavior that they have been taught. They have either been taught it because society never called them out on it, or they have been taught it because they are seeing it in movies, video games, and, and this is the behavior that we've just sort of accepted. I do not agree with any sort of messaging that says children who experience sexual assault as a child go on to abuse kids when they grow up. I experienced sexual assault as a child and the worst thing imaginable to me is hurting a child in the same way that I was hurt. And so while we do see some of those statistics about boys in particular who grow up watching their parents in abusive relationships, namely their father abusing their mother, they have a tendency to commit violence against their partners as they're adults. Uh, what we see far more is that people are suffering in silence and they don't know how to manage these emotions. So there's absolutely a learned component to the violence that we are seeing. And we have to be willing to name it when it actually happens. Somebody on one of my social media platforms just posted a meme that said, being kissed while you're sleeping is the most romantic thing in the world. And I was sexually assaulted while I was sleeping by one of my partners. And my initial thought when I saw that was, well, it's actually an assault. <laughs> being kissed when you're sleeping is not okay. There was no consent there. And of course, in relationships, people choose what they want and everything like that. And that should be had, right? If that's a conversation you've had with your partner, then, you know, by all means. But for most people, those are the type of messages that we receive is that that's what's attractive. And so when we continue to perpetuate the idea that sexiness is kissing people without their consent, just going for it, that having sex has nothing to do with conversation. We will continue to see sexual assault happen because we're unwilling to just use the words to express what we want and respect when other people don't want something. And so as we move more into talking about the destructive nature of pornography. Are we willing to have this conversation about what it looks like and why that's violence? Because when I was doing education in the schools, kids always said pornography and stripping and prostitution, those are not forms of sexual violence because there's consent there. So we are missing a major component of people understanding what does coerced consent look like? And how does a system that really feeds off of the oppression of people who have no other opportunity other than selling their bodies for their livelihoods, that that's somehow consent in our mind. And so again, it requires this shifting. And I think that we're getting there, but I think that a lot of it is still it's these people over here, right? If we end pornography and we take down Pornhub, then we're good to go. Well, we took down Backpage and <laughs> that, that didn't necessarily solve our problems, right? So Pornhub gets taken down. There's just going to be another one that's up and we know that. So how do we authentically have this conversation about porn in our culture? I kind of am not sure that it's going to ever go away, 
but how do we make changes to that industry to make it less perpetrator-like? And is that even possible? Those are the discussions we should be willing to have as advocates and community members. I don't want to miss out on this. If there's somebody listening today to this episode, listening to you talk, and they've had a history of sexual violence that they've never shared with anyone for whatever reason, what is your advice to that person? You don't have to tell anybody. There's this idea that in order to recover, we have to talk about our experiences. And while that is so true for so many people, for some people, it's just not. And so, you know, if you're holding back because you feel like it was your fault or you feel like you don't belong within this world or that the name victim or survivor is not something that you can claim, I would encourage them that that's wrong. That's the lie. And that's what I do. And my overarching company is called Learning to Live Beyond the Lies because our society has taught us so much that are all lies about how we should live and how we should survive as victim survivors. Healing looks like taking back your power in whatever way that looks like for you, right? So we're not trying to get to this place where society says, great, you're healed. You're trying to get back to this place where you recognize, I make the decisions about my body. I make the decisions about who I'm with, who I have sex with. I make decisions about who comes in my home, who I have boundaries with, and I'm safe. And when you get to a place where you feel safe and you feel comfortable, then that can look like healing for you. There are also lots of different places that you can call to talk to people anonymously if you don't have a support system either. I know women who will never tell their families what happened to them, but they call hotlines maybe a couple times a month to talk to somebody. And the other thing is that not all therapists are good at trauma. And so when you're looking at trauma, and especially even for therapists if they're listening, just because you can help somebody navigate the loss of their child, it doesn't mean you can help somebody navigate the loss of their own childhood. And so working with victims of sexual assault, of child sexual abuse, it is incredibly important that you find somebody who is skilled in helping people navigate what healing could look like for you. And, and just, you're not alone. Well, Jessica, thank you so much. I feel like we could go on and on because this is such a deep subject that we could just keep talking about. But what are ways that we can stay connected with you and the work that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So the best way would be to visit my website at jessicateresi.com. I put out different blogs on different topics. I have some resources there for victim survivors if you're in need of anything. And I'll continue putting up different things and different types of resources. You can also follow me on my Instagram at Jessica Teresi underscore speaker. I do put out different infographics and different things like that, but I will be going on maternity leave here. And so that will be probably not super busy <laughs> for a few weeks here, but um, I'd love to uh, stay connected. And, and if you had any thoughts, feel free to, to connect with me via email. You can get all that information on my website. Special thanks to Jessica Teresi for being on the show today. Again, such an important conversation that we need to continue to have. I'll have links to all of her information in the show notes, so make sure that you stay in connection with Jessica. 
I am really excited about the next couple of weeks. This is actually in response to some listeners who said, we need to talk about our transgender community. And I said, absolutely. So I reached out to Paula Stone Williams, who is a transgender pastor, a world-renowned speaker on gender issues. She's going to be on the show next week. And then the week after that, I was able to reach out to her son, Jonathan Williams, who's a pastor out at a progressive church in New York City. And he's going to share the story from his perspective as well, which is also vitally important for all of us. So you're not going to want to miss the next couple of weeks with Paula Stone Williams and Jonathan Williams. Of course, the best way you can support this podcast is to subscribe to it, give it a five-star rating, and write a review. Until next time, keep walking.